Hello, I'm Lara Hamilton. Welcome to Book Larder Podcast, where we share author talks from the kitchen of Seattle's community cookbook shop. This week, we're exploring the connections between food, memory, and family with Naz Duravian. In 1979, Naz and her family fled the revolution and war in Iran, ending up in Vancouver a few years later. Amid the turmoil of her family effectively leaving a life behind, food became an important connection to their culture and, as Naz describes, was instrumental in helping them start their new lives in Canada. Naz is now an actor and writer based in Los Angeles, and her first book, Bottom of the Pot, based on her award-winning blog, is beautiful in so many ways. It's got gorgeous photos, really wonderful recipes, and I think my favorite part is the stories that she shares throughout. You'll even get to hear a bit of one of them in this podcast. The book also won this year's IACP Best First Book Award presented by the Julia Child Foundation. Here's Naz Duravian and Bottom of the Pot. Thank you. Thank you to all of you for coming out on your Sunday morning. And thank you to Book Larder for having me. I grew up in Vancouver, BC. So this is kind of like a homecoming for me to um, wake up to rain and to fall asleep. <laughs> I'm just going to start off with the genesis of the book, really. I always get asked, what made you want to write a cookbook? How did you go from an actor in Los Angeles, driving many miles for auditions to wanting to stay at home and test recipes and write a cookbook. Uh, and it all goes back to my blog. I started a food blog 2013-2014. I didn't set out to write a food blog or necessarily write stories or talk about recipes, but as these things happen quite often in my home, it all happened around the dinner table. As I mentioned, I am an actor, but at that point I had two young children and I was getting kind of tired of the grind, the instability of working in the entertainment industry. I needed an outlet where I could just be creative and be creative on my own terms without having to wait for the phone call for the next job. So I decided, well, what do I like to talk about? Food. <laughs> um, Persian food specifically. These conversations that would come about around our kitchen table with our friends who are mostly not Iranian. We would sit around and we would get into the tadig and the rice and the stews and all the accoutrement, all the other little things and talk about, well, how do you make the perfect bite? We'll speak about that as well at the Persian table. And what struck me was all our friends who have been enjoying this food, whether it's been around my kitchen table or around my mother's kitchen table growing up, all my university friends, high school friends, back to my elementary school days, they loved what they were eating, but they always felt intimidated to prepare this food at home for their families and for their friends. And that always made me a little bit sad because A, to once again feel intimidated by something Persian just struck 
something in me. And of all things, our food, which at its heart and core and soul is home cooking, meant to be shared with friends and family. So I would, you know, then start rattling off. Well, you just, you know, parboil the rice, and I use my hands a lot when I speak. And it, I would start miming, you know, and then you add your saffron, which you've steeped, and you know, and I could just see them going, "What's happening?" <laughs> so I started emailing everyone. My recipes, and then I got tired of emailing so many people individually that I thought, okay, I'll put it all in one place. I'm not a technical person. I'm not a tech savvy person, so starting a blog felt very daunting to me. But you know, someone said, oh, you can go on Blogger, and it's very easy, and you just click this and click this. It was kind of easy. It was a little <laughs> challenging, but I did that, and I started just just really for friends and family. And as I started sharing the recipes, I found. Very quickly after the first or second post, that each ingredient started sparking these stories and memories of my childhood in Iran, or our migration from Iran to Rome to Vancouver, and then eventually me moving by myself to Los Angeles. So I started sharing the stories too, and it all happened very organically. Within a few months, I don't know, the blog got some attention, and there came some nominations and awards and whatnot. And I was approached to write a book. And those who know me know that I say no to everything when I'm first approached to do it. <laughs> so at the time, I really didn't feel that I had a book in me. Nor did I have the stories or the recipes to share. I'm not one to jump into something if I don't feel prepared. Now, I don't think you're ever fully prepared for what's coming at you when you're writing a cookbook. So I sat on it for about a year, and I kept cooking more and more, and I kept writing more and more. And there came a point where I thought, okay. Maybe I can do this. Let's give it a go, and and that's how it all began. And I started writing the book. I think we can easily say that Persian food is having a moment. Finally, it's having its moment. It's been interesting why this particular cuisine has been so stubborn in the West to break through. Yes, some of the dishes are more involved. There are certain techniques. But really, once you get to know the specific ingredient, ingredients and、um, just a couple of steps of how to make a dish, or even just to get to know the spirit of the Persian souffle, the table that we sit around, the tablecloth that we sit around, and just putting together the perfect bite, the perfect lokme, there you have a Persian meal. So it, even if it's just some plain rice and a little yogurt. And a piece of bread and some fresh herbs. You can say you're having a Persian meal. So if you understand the spirit of it, and if you're sharing it with friends, that's even better. What was important to me was to write the book with those non-Iranian friends of mine in mind, so that they would be able to create these meals at their home. And of course, for Iranians as well, maybe Iranians of my generation who have gone through similar travels and who have similar stories and are nostalgic for the food of their grandmothers or uncles, dais and amus and chales and ames, and maybe there was something for them in this as well.
So I started with that, with wanting to make this, not dumbing it down by any means, but just making it more accessible. I think I was asked by you today where you can find a specific um, spice that we use that's called Golpar, Persian hogweed. It's labeled Angelica. It's very confusing. We're confusing people, even when it comes to our spices. So it's labeled Angelica. It says Golpar. It's technically Persian hogweed which sounds like something out of like a children's fairy tale or something. It's a spice that comes from the north of Iran. We use it a lot in the north, in the Gilan province, um, bordering the Caspian Sea. All of these ingredients are available to us. I made sure everything that is mentioned in the book is available to us. Now, you have great markets here in Seattle. You can go visit them. I highly recommend doing that because then you can start speaking to people and you can get to know more about the cuisine that way too. Everyone will want to share their recipe with you. They're going to leave something out. They're not going to give you their full recipe, but... They'll give you a gist of it, and you can make it uh, your own at home. Or you can go online and find everything online these days. So everything is accessible. You can find the ingredients. And then there are, of course, the stories that come with it. The book is written, I don't like to call it a memoir, but it's my memories. <laughs> and each chapter begins with a story, which is kind of related to that chapter and the food that I share in that chapter. I'd love to share a story from the book with you today, and then we can, if you have questions, or um, we can talk more about specifically the food in the book, if you have any questions about that. Like I mentioned, I grew up in Vancouver, BC. Vancouver in 1982, when we immigrated, was not the Vancouver of today. <laughs> I think we were the fourth or fifth Iranian family that landed in Vancouver. So if you go to Vancouver today, there's so many Iranians, North and West Vancouver, filled with Iranians, Iranian markets, Iranian restaurants. I highly recommend it. There's a lot of good stuff happening there right now, but not so much in 1982. Keep in mind that this was directly after the hostage taking. And this story is from the bread chapter. It's called Life. Vancouver, 1982. Life in the diaspora began with little more than flour, water, yeast, a moody oven, and hearts full of resilience and determination. We landed, officially referred to as landed immigrants, in Vancouver on my 10th birthday, which we celebrated twice, once amid tears and trepidation of what awaited us across the Atlantic in Rome's Fiumicino Airport. Then a second time, 16 hours later, and technically nine hours earlier, jet-lagged and dazed in Vancouver International Airport. Two birthdays in one day. Not a bad start to life in the new world. Two years earlier, we had left Iran in the midst of a revolution and the beginnings of a war, to now land in Vancouver via Rome with three overstuffed suitcases and one sewing machine in tow. Winding our way through the airport, we made a final stop behind the frosted windows of customs and immigration. I have a complicated relationship with airports. A space that once held promise, the gateway to summer vacations and adventure, now makes my heart race a little faster, beat a little harder. A seemingly random red strip of tape on the ground, a dated stamp and ink pad, a place of birth forever etched on a passport, and a somber uniformed officer, 
determine our future, our lives. These days, as I absentmindedly rush through various airports, I once again pause at those red lines and frosted window panes. I wonder what new family is anxiously pacing back there, sleep-deprived and confused, hoping for that stamp to hit the ink, hoping to step into a new life. With our paperwork officially stamped, we were welcomed to Canada by an immigration officer, and just like that, we were released out into the wild. Like other immigrant families before us, and surely those after us, we awkwardly pushed our luggage cart, heaped with suitcases on the verge of teetering off, packing tape, securing the lid on a lifetime, condensed into three suitcases, stuffed with every bit of home, memory, and spice we could fit in. Immigration is at the very best of times undertaken by choice, and at desperate times dictated by necessity and survival. For my parents, it meant shelving all past hopes and expectations, professions and passions, uneventful daily routines and schedules, to quickly find a way to acclimate and provide for me and my brother in a new country. The path to provisions of providing presented itself by chance a couple of months after our initial arrival. One evening, as we were acquainting ourselves with our new neighborhood of North Vancouver, we stumbled upon what we assumed was an Italian deli. Heartsick for fresh mozzarella, prosciutto, and mortadella, and in need of a respite from the never-ending Vancouver rain showers, we ducked inside. There we were greeted by the scent of cured meats and sharp cheese, and the store owner in his crisp white deli robe. Always a comforting sight. My parents greeted him with a buongiorno, to which he responded with a salam. As it turned out, he was Persian. Introductions were made, and in the midst of exchanging pleasantries, he mentioned his desire to sell more Persian goods in the store, in particular, Iranian bread. My mother, without missing a beat, and quite confidently, offered her services. By the time we walked out with mortadella and pepperoncini under arm, it was agreed that she would provide the store with homemade nonna barbari, barbari bread. Now, barbari is the most popular and beloved breads in Iran, and is often eaten at breakfast with a thick slice of feta cheese and a strong cup of black coffee. Barbari, sangak, lavash, and toftun make up the most common breads enjoyed by Iranians. These breads are made at a nonvai, a bread bakery, and handed to you hot out of the tenur, a traditional clay oven. Nonvais can be found in every other block in Iran with long lines winding out the door. Non, the Persian word for bread, and it simply just means bread, any kind of bread. A baguette, a slice of white bread, toast, non is just bread. I have to make that clear. <laughs> and chai, chai or chai is just tea. That's it. Tea, any kind of tea. <laughs> Naan, the Persian word for bread at the table, is not only a constant companion, but a revered guest. Wheat is considered sacred, a symbol of life and the beginnings of civilization. Not a single crumb is ever to be wasted and should always be repurposed. Maman had never baked a single naan in her life. <laughs> but our lives had to be sustained. So she took inspiration from the roots of civilization and put in a call to one of the most famed bakeries of her hometown of Tabriz. Now, long-distance calls, 
back in 1982 consisted of the dialing of rotary phones, a lot of crackling in the line, and plenty of yelling, allo, 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 over and over again. It's an anomaly how Maman managed to transcribe the method of bread baking yelled back at her using vast quantities of flour and water to turn out barbari in our tiny apartment kitchen with an equally tiny and incredibly grumpy oven. There is a push and pull to bread baking. There are many variables that can affect the process. Rhythm, temperature, temperament, inspiration, timing, luck, and patience. But on those magical days when you find your rhythm, when it all flows, it's an accomplishment worthy of a celebration. Maybe even two celebrations in one day. As it turned out, Maman had a knack for bread baking, and our little non-vai business took off. When demand grew, Baba would take over to knead and stretch the dough. A 7 a.m. knock on our door became a regular occurrence with people lining up down the apartment building hallway to pick up their daily barbari. For a time in 1982, Maman, reputed and celebrated as the first female lyricist of Iran, proudly reinvented herself as the first baker of bread barbari in Vancouver, temporarily trading in her notebook and plume for a dusting of flour and a drizzle of water. Our lives had taken so many twists and turns that we no longer questioned the absurdity of any given situation as we woke to the smell of fresh naan, the rhythmic kneading of my architect father's arms, and the hushed murmurs of Maman working through another rhyme as they both punched, knocked back, dusted, drizzled, and survived. These stories are a common story. I am the voice telling this particular story, but they're a shared story of many of us. Different mamans, different babas, different grumpy ovens. <laughs> but this is not particular to me. It's a common story shared by many of us who have gone through similar adversities and overcome. And it's still going on, maybe more so than ever. Yeah, and bread is at the heart of it usually. <laughs> Food for us in Iran was just something that is part of our culture. Just like the art and the literature and the music is, food runs deep in our blood. It's in our culture. Food for my family for a certain period of time in Vancouver became something that sustained us quite literally. It's how we made our first Canadian dollars with barbari. And then my mom actually started, she made piroshki, and this thing kind of grew because when she sets her sights on something, nothing can stop her. She started a catering business out of that very small kitchen, and then she's back to her writing. <laughs> so these are the stories that I like to tell around the table and that I, I'm happy to share with you now you know, along with the recipes and that drizzle of saffron water. And I hope these are the stories that you can carry with you and the recipes that you can make at home for your families. These are not easy days, for sure. There's a lot happening. I certainly don't think that a cookbook about a certain region that is kind of on fire again, not that the embers were ever really put out, but it's sizzling again. I don't think this is going to solve anything. But at the very least, if it can just add to the conversation, if we can visit our local Iranian markets and buy the golpar, <laughs> that's, that's a little something. So we can open it up if you like. <laughs> <laughs>
I was reading about how you treat saffron. Could you explain that again? Yes. So the toasting, um, the Spanish do that as well, the toasting, which is great. The thing you have to be careful, saffron is very, very fragile, right? Um, it's very delicate. So you can go from toasting to burnt in like half a second. What we do, because saffron is also the most expensive spice in the world by weight, more, more expensive than gold. So we're quite economical people. So we use a lot of saffron, but it's not, we're not all made of gold. Like, you know, so by grinding it first, now the reason you're toasting and grinding, sometimes it can be, you want to catch the humidity in it. So that's what it is. So it makes it easier to grind. In my experience, if you use good quality Persian saffron, you don't need the toasting. Sometimes what we do is add a little sugar to the threads when you put it in your mortar and pestle, and that helps grinding it. Again, I haven't found that I've needed to do that with my saffron. I just grind it and it grinds well. I also have a dedicated saffron spice grinder. It's a, like a tiny coffee grinder, which I only use for saffron. And there's a sign on it that says saffron only. So my husband doesn't put his coffee beans in there because I use large amounts of saffron. So it's just easier for me to grind it. My mom used to do it for me. And then she would put it in these pill bottles. I think every Iranian can <laughs> relate to this. And then she would send the pill bottles <laughs> via mail <laughs> to me, or I would bring it back with them. So we all know these little, the orange or green pill bottles, there's saffron in there. I put it in a small jam jar. So once you grind it, you can do it in a mortar and pestle. If you're using larger quantities, you can use a spice grinder and it will keep, your saffron will keep. Don't keep it, you know, next to heat, all those other things that you know about your spices. And then what you want to do is just you don't need a lot of it. You take a little bit, be it an eighth of a teaspoon, a quarter of a teaspoon, depending on what you're using, what you're making. And you want to release that aroma, flavor, and that beautiful color. There are two ways that you can do that. I have grown up using the hot water method, which is you're basically making something of a saffron tea. So you bring a kettle of uh, water to a boil. Now, what I say in my book is you don't, just like making tea, you don't want to pour just boiled water over that saffron. You're going to, they say, kill saffron's soul. No one wants to kill saffron's soul. <laughs> so I just bring it to a boil, just wait a minute, one, you know, for a count to 60, and then you pour it in. Then you can make yourself quite a bit of saffron water, and you can keep that saffron water in the fridge. So every time you need saffron, you know, for a few days, not forever, but you can just use the saffron water or use it for that dish that you're making on that specific. Another way of using your saffron, and some people use this method, is that you, you put the um, saffron grinds over ice. And they say that that treats the saffron it's more delicate and more gentle. And I find that for me, I find that more useful perhaps for more fresh, like for ice cream or something like that. But if I'm putting it in a stew, it's going to get heated up anyways. So I stick with the hot water method, whatever works best for you. I don't toast my saffron threads because I don't trust myself not to burn them. And also the saffron that I'm buying and using, I don't find that it needs it. Yes. Yes friend who's, who 
who used to live here was Persian. She asked if she could cook with Snowroos at my house. So I became her sous chef for a year. Lucky you. It was so fun. What really took me was how many fresh herbs. Let's talk about the herbs. Iranians use mountains upon mountains of fresh green herbs. You know, rounding off is parsley, cilantro, mint, tarragon, fenugreek, green onion, chives. Help me out. Dill. Dill. Thank you, dill. Basil. Basil we don't cook so much with, but... We eat. There's Persian basil that we like to eat fresh, and it's so delicious. Um, I, I can't recommend it enough. It's a smaller leaf. It's very fragrant. As soon as you, you, know, you take a sniff, you're just hit with, you want that piece of feta cheese and your bread because you want to make a little lohme with it. Um, it's like a um, lemon basil. It's similar to lemon basil. It has a little bit of a bite to it, but not a bitter bite like Italian basil. And it's not as big leaf. Back to the, the fresh herbs. There are a number of ways that we use the fresh herbs. One being in a platter of sabzi khordan. Sabzi, again, being fresh herbs, khordan being to eat. So it just means herbs for eating. And we have a platter of fresh herbs at our table with almost every meal. And I like to think of it, think of it as the salad portion of the meal, which was kind of what it was before salads came into the Persian repertoire, what it does, what these fresh herbs do is they're digestive, really. So they aid, they serve a purpose with our meals because we have these perhaps heavier stews and um, very flavorful, you know, rice dishes. Um, So they aid the mint and the parsley and the basil uh, and the green onion. But we also, I don't know if you've been to Persian restaurants, we also have a, we just put a hunk of onion at the table. And everyone's always taken aback by what you do with the onion. So the onion serves the same purpose with a lot of the kebab dishes, with the meat dishes. It's thought that it's an antibacterial as well. So if the meat hasn't, you know, it just aids. It's, um, again, another digestive. So this always comes up at our table is how you know, I, wa- I like to watch my friends who are not familiar with the food, what they're going to do with the herbs. And my kids do the same thing. <laughs> so I see some people start decorating their plate. Like, they're, you know, they'll start, like, garnishing and throwing the, the herbs on top. And we say, no, no, no. And my kids like to give a mini lesson <laughs> on how to do this. So you have your rice, and let's say you have a stew, and you have maybe have a little bit of yogurt. So you put a little rice onto your spoon or your fork, and then you put a little stew onto the same spoon or fork. And then you're taking a bite, and you'll pick up a piece of basil or mint, and you'll put that bite in your mouth, and you start chewing, and at the same time, in goes in. <laughs> so it's, we eat with, alongside the food. The herbs are not a garnish. You will never go back. Once you eat this way, you will eat fresh herbs with almost anything. I've had friends tell me they now have it with pasta, which is a little strange to me. But, you know, do what you must. So that's one way is the fresh, you know, having the platter of fresh herbs at the table. The other is that we use all these herbs as a main ingredient in either stews or osh, which is a thick soup. 
So we go through kilograms of herbs to, as a base and a foundation for a stew. It's the main ingredient. It's not an afterthought. It's not something like we put a handful of parsley at the end to brighten up the dish. You actually cook these herbs down and they almost caramelize, and the flavor profile really changes. So if you're familiar with this famous stew, Qurma Sabzi, which is the herbs and the dried limes and kidney beans, I make it with black-eyed peas, that's all herbs. It's a bunch of parsley, cilantro, um, tare, which is like a, a Persian chive, but you can use the greens of the green onion, that's essentially, and some um, fenugreek. That's essentially what it is. So uh, I cannot stand recipes that call for herbs in cups or tablespoons. What does that even mean? And who's chopping up herbs and then putting it in a cup to see if they have half a cup or a cup? Like, who does that? I mean, if you do, stop. <laughs> in my recipes, I just speak of bunches because that's how usually how we buy herbs here. So, and it's not in those tiny packs. Those are not, that's not for uh, Persian. So if you're making my dill rice, please do not buy the dill. That's not going to get you anywhere. That's like enough dill for me to just put in my mouth. So you need actual bunches. And then don't worry about how big or small your bunch is too much. The, the, those are like things that you shouldn't get too concerned with. Um, chop them up. A lot of people ask me about the stems. So cilantro stem, I actually find quite flavorful and, and nice and, and good, but I, I do still like to take the tough stems off. Cilantro, then I'll chop like the tender stems. Parsley, I like the leaves because you also don't want pieces of stem in your stew. So you either have to chop it really fine. You have to chop it finely. There's two ways of doing that. This is where all the chopping comes in. So you did it with a knife. Wow. That's awesome. <laughs> Depending on how much you're chopping, I use my food processor. I'm lazy. And I know there's a school of thought that says it'll taste fresher if you do it by hand. And that is true. What I will not use the food processor for is mint because it'll turn bitter right away. Basil, if I was to chop basil, and green onion. That will turn mushy and bitter as well. But parsley and cilantro and dill, I'll throw in the food processor. And then don't run it. Don't run the fruit. Pulse it. So you don't want mush. You just want a fine chop. And then don't do this while the herbs are still wet. You want right. the herbs to be dry. Yes. Do you have a preference between using a rice cooker or stovetop? Great question. I love my rice cooker. We are a family of four working parents. Um, so I don't have the luxury nor the time on a Wednesday night to parboil my rice and then, you know, to wait and do this and that and that. So I reserve the traditional way of preparing the rice for the weekends or if I'm entertaining. And on all the other nights, out comes the rice cooker. And I highly recommend it. It'll give you a tadig every single time. You, and you will impress your friends and family. When you flip that thing, people will lose their minds. <laughs> I know there's also a school of thought on this, that you're cheating. I don't feel like I'm cheating at all. I'm being smart by making the most of my time. I talk about the rice cooker 
in my book. And there are Persian grandmothers who use the rice cooker as well. So if you run into an Iranian who gives you a hard time about the rice cooker, they're doing it at home too. <laughs> and the Persian rice cookers are moody too. They all behave. So there you go. We're complicated. So you have to get to know your rice cooker. Like my mom knows that her rice cooker will burn at the maximum setting. Don't I don't know. So she sets it at like 45 minutes. So it's, you know, try it a couple of times. And when I say burn, it's not like you're scorching it. It's not edible. It's just going to be a little bit darker. Do you go into hot and cold foods? It's naturally. So there's this concept of... um, of our foods, it falls into two categories. Garmi, which is hot, and um, sardi, which is cool. This is not heat. This is not like a cold food that's been referred. These are um, how certain foods or ingredients affect your system. So it is thought that, for instance, dates are garmi. They're warming. If you're ill, what type of food you should be eating and what your natural temperament is. So I have been told I run hot, which explains my love for yogurt. I love yogurt, which is a cooling, right? It cools you down. Melons are actually warming. Like cantaloupe is thought as a warming. Fesenjun, our famed dish of walnuts and pomegranate. Walnuts are thought of as warming. Garmi, pomegranates are thought of as cooling. So what we want is balance. So you put these two ingredients together. There's a rhyme and reason, actually, to why some of these ingredients are paired. It makes sense. And it all comes back to digestion and ha- the effect of food on the body. Um, Iranians are obsessed with digestion. Everything <laughs> comes back to digestion. And, you know, you'll hear at the, a Persian mother at the table, no, eat that, it'll help you know, with with your digestion. And it makes sense, and it actually works. But I don't go too deep into into the medicinal side of it. I just, I touch on it. Yes? I just wonder if your daughters are interested in Iranian cooking and if you think it's something they'll be able to do. They love to eat it. So (laughs) if if that's... um, So here's the thing. I never cooked with my mother or growing up. I don't know that we weren't told to come and cook. We were told to sit and pick the sabzi or the shell, the fava beans, jobs like that, but not necessarily invited to cook. We were told to go do our homework. (laughs) You know, that was where we needed to be. The cooking just happened. And those scents just, you know, flowed through the house. So that's how I was introduced to it. I came to Persian cooking on my own when I left my family home and I found myself hungry within a week. Not because I wasn't eating, but because I needed polochoresh and masochiar, right? So I called up my mother and just like every other, you know, she was like, I, she just would say three things, like three words or three sentences of Put a little bit of this and this and then, you know, and then taste it and make sure it tastes good, which goes to the heart of Persian cooking as well. So use these recipes, use any recipes as a roadmap, as a guide, but they're not an edict. Uh, You have to make it your own. It's the hands that make it. So once you become familiar with this food and the combinations, then make it your own. You have to do whatever works best for you. I won't get offended 
other Iranians doesn't matter what they think, right? You have to make make do with what you have. Um, back to your questions, I think I think my children, it's just in there because now they know that they love fesenjun. That's what they ask for on any given day, which is not a dish that you prepare on any given day. Like my nine-year-old will ask for it when it's 100 degrees out. And in the Garmi and Saadi, you know, I'm like, we're not having fesenjun on a hot day, right? Um, but, and they love lubiopolo, the green beans and rice. So this, these are tastes that are now in there. And they'll come to me at some point. I'll leave it up to them to come to me to ask. When they're ready to um, come and ask, I'll be there. But they make like the yogurt, and I, ha- and, I ha- and I dedicated it to them. So hopefully, you know, it'll go to college with them, <laughs> with the rice cooker. <laughs> yeah, so I think that's the best we can do. I'm also, I'm a big believer in paying respect and homage to tradition and always providing context But then, like I said, I like to make things my own, too. So I will veer sometimes. But if I do, I'll let you know that that's what I'm doing. For instance, I actually didn't grow up eating a lot of red meat in our house. Almost all our stews are with red meat traditionally, right? My mom would, we make our lubia polo, our green beans and rice with chicken. That's how I grew up eating it. That's what tastes good to me. Now when I have it with red meat, it tastes good but different. Not what gives me comfort, right? And I have moved. I haven't been back to Iran since I was eight years old. So this is food that um, I call it's accented just like me. And it's a reflection of my travels. That's the best that I can do. I can't speak for what's happening in Iran at this moment. And I'm also not shopping in Iran. So I'm using what's available to me in Los Angeles, which is quite a lot. <laughs> yes. Is our uh, brown and wild rice used at all? Yes, brown rice is used, not as commonly as white rice. Wild rice? I'm not familiar with wild rice being used. But again, you can do what you like. Um, I do prepare brown rice in my rice cooker. I, I actually like brown rice with khoresh qayme, which is the stew with with the yellow split peas and the limu amani, the Persian dried lime. I like the flavor of that with brown rice. But no, if we're talking about Persian rice, we're talking about long-grained, aromatic, white, basmati-style rice in Iran. Iran has its own rice, which I don't think we can't get, where it's not accessible to us here. Basmati is the closest. And you want long grains. That's what's most important. And every grain needs to shine on its own. <laughs> no pressure. No pressure at all. <laughs> well, thank you so much, Mark. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much to Naz Duravian for visiting us in Seattle. As always, you can get 10% off a copy of Bottom of the Pot and any other books featured on the Booklarder podcast by visiting booklarder.com and entering the code podcast at checkout. This episode was produced and edited by Abby Circatella. Our theme music was composed by James Coley. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, where our handle is at Booklarder. 
For more information about Book Larder, including author talks, cooking classes, and to join our monthly email newsletter, visit booklarder.com. And if you find yourself in Seattle, please visit us at 4252 Fremont Avenue North. I'm Lara Hamilton. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time.